amidst the um, strange weather, which I gather we're about to get some more tomorrow. Um, but uh, nevertheless, obviously, uh, still feels one week on, still feels um, not entirely real or, or, or what have you about uh, Father O'Reilly not being with us. But, uh, you know, we continue on as, as uh, you know, he did so often and so well in terms of teaching and, and learning. And I think that's that's what we're left with at, at this moment is to uh, dive into the to the class and, and um, you know, just kind of keep, keep his example in the back of our mind. Um, with that, I do want to start today by um, just pretty briefly going over the, um, oh, you know what? Uh, somebody recommended last, uh, two, yeah, last week recording this just in case, some, you know, if, if some issue happens and it, and it may be with me, in which case it's not very helpful, but does anyone object if I, if I record this? Is that, is that okay? I don't know if it's common practice or not, but I just want to throw it out there. Um, one sec. Okay. So um, I want to start today by going over picking up an echo somewhere. Oh, I think it's gone. Um, by going over the assignment for that's in the files place on um, Populi for the book review and reflection. Um, I don't know if you, you maybe have had a chance to look at it, so I won't sort of belabor it um, too much. But the idea here, as I said, I think two weeks ago when we first met, the idea is to um, because the Vidmar text, and to a large degree, our, you know, these lectures are, are um, you know, kind of surface level, you know, 60,000 feet or, or whatever. Um, the point here is to be able to go a little bit more in depth on a subject of interest to, to you, you know, something that you're, you're interested in. And to read it, you know, something more narrow, but more deeply. And so um, it, it's really, there's a broad range, you know, a lot of latitude here in terms of what, what kind of um, topic you'd like to look at. The, the key point is that, it, is that the, the book itself be, you know, kind of a work of church history, you know, not, not like a popular uh, account or a, um, you know, more like spiritual oriented or something, but that it has a, a real concrete kind of historical um, component to it, you know, and, and so that's that's the key thing. Um, I really do see this as these the, that page one uh, lays it out as the kind of two parts: the review part, the book review part, and then the reflection part. And uh, the the book review is again, in in some ways, just a way for us to have the experience, the exercise of of thinking about how to characterize. Uh, another author's argument and and you know evaluate it critically not in a bad sense but just here, here's where I think it worked or didn't work here are some shortcomings or, or I thought it was entirely compelling um, again I, I say this here but 
in the instructions, but do want to emphasize in the, I, I give you those two links just to give you, um, you know, some further detail if you want to check out, you know, kind of format for, for a, a book review. But I, I want to emphasize, you know, there isn't um, an expectation that you're going to situate, you know, this book amid the other historiographical works of the topic, you know, like the, these other 10 books are the important ones on St. Francis of Assisi or something. It's really just to give you a feel for, you know, how you might approach evaluating, like, what's the thesis? Um, you know, what, what, how, how was the book organized in you know, three parts or ho however it might be? Um, and then evaluate, you know, how, how you think the author does at you know, either successfully arguing for the thesis or, or maybe coming up short in some areas. So that portion, as I say, is, um, you know, slightly more than half, maybe like two to three pages or thereabouts. And then the reflection portion is more open-ended, if you will, more, um, you know, an opportunity for, for you to, to think about how the text and how, you know, the, the, the examination of whatever the subject is fits into our course and, and some of the major themes. And, uh, Again, I give you some questions to kind of prompt uh, that piece, which is maybe one or two pages, maybe a little longer, but you know, it's, it's really an opportunity for you to reflect on the text in the context of, of our study of church history together. Um, yeah, double space, but formatting is, I, I don't have any particular, um, anything unusual, just whatever, whatever the style guide is for all of your other papers to choose it here. I'm not expecting you to, um, to cite heavily from other texts, uh, honestly. Um, you know, really the main thing you'll be citing is, is the, the book itself, but whichever you choose and maybe tied into Vidmar, but you know, it's not, if the object here isn't to, um, Know, have you you know looking at five or six or seven sources I mean if, if you have them at hand and it and it's something that you um, you know want to do that's great but but I, I want to be clear that that's not the the expectation which leads me to one final point that I, I don't think I say specifically but I would uh, the the goal here is for you to read a book that you have not previously read um, so you know obviously that's uh, you know, sort of uh, just my request. Um, if there's a, a book on church history that, that you love and you've already read, you know, maybe you can find something, um, you know, related or, or uh, on the same topic, but it's hopefully to encounter a new text and evaluate it, you know, as we go through the course. Um, the second page, I mean, I think, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. I, I give you a number of, of possibilities the library has some, um, like the Dunwoody Library, but I don't even, I guess I haven't even thought about that. How is that working? Is, is Are you able to get books from the library? You can, but you have to travel to Yonkers from Connecticut to pick up a book. Yeah. So, there's, no, uh, there's no way to get them up, up to trans, transport it up there? Like to, that's they'll, they'll, open you, they'll, they'll run somebody out in the library now. Yeah. It's uh, no, we're, we'd have to buy whatever book we're gonna we're gonna use. Some of these um, texts would be available 
in, uh, you know, might very well may be available in a public library. Um, you know, not all of them, realistically, because a lot of them are academic works, but um, I could definitely see a number of these um, available. You know, John O'Malley, Brad Gregory, Eamon Duffy. These are, these are historians that are really serious scholars, but also have a kind of, they've crossed over, if you will, to some degree into the public um, sphere. And I would I would almost expect that a number of public libraries would carry um, some of these books. Um, but honestly, this is this is pretty wide open from my perspective. I do want to be you know a resource. So if you have questions or you need help, if there's something you really want to read but you can't find it, or you want to you know you think about buying it but it costs you know way too much money as these these books sometimes can. Uh, and run way, way more expensive than you would think. Um, you know, let me know and um, can see if, if maybe we can um, find a workaround somehow. Um, you know, whatever it may be, or, or a similar book that's that's more readily available or something like that. Um, you know, I have lots more ideas and suggestions of, of books that would be good that aren't on this list, but I wanted to keep it to one page. So um, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. And then the only other thing, um, the only other thing is, um, oh, if you want to read a book that's not on this list, please just run it by me first. I mean, there's, there's a very good chance, you know, as long as it's a work of church history or whatever, that that I'll sign off on it. But I just, um, if it's not on the list, something you're interested in, just send me a note with the title. Um, and the author, and I'll take a look and then get back in a, you know, a day or so and say yes or no. So, um, I think that's what I want to say about the assignment. The last piece, right, is to settle on a due date. And I indicated um, when we met our, our first class that I, I like to leave that a little bit open um, in terms of uh, waiting to see what you all have in terms of other other commitments other assignments so i am still of that of that mindset i would say when i look at the syllabus april 19th still looks like um uh a good a good target in terms of it's uh after easter you know we don't have class easter monday that fifth um it so it wouldn't be the week after easter two weeks after easter but then also not the last class that we have so that, that would be my inclination but if you have already committed in another class that most of you are in or something for an assignment that's due april 19th i'm, I'm open to you know moving it slightly so how does that sound anybody see generally heads nodding what's the last class uh april 26th is our last scheduled meeting with the final exam on may 3rd is there any way we could put only because we have our it's, a few of us are working on our thesis as well so I'm, I'm reading about 42 books right now so I'm, I'm happy to do it but I the more time the better I can talk to you individually about that but I prefer as much time as we can to get through the book and I also would love to know which is the shortest book on that list that you gave us um, <laughs> let's think about that shoot me a, shoot me a note uh, I, will, I would love to whatever the shortest book is I'm, I'm dying to read it yeah, the challenge there is sometimes the, the short ones are really 
packed in. And so like the argument is like particularly dense at times, but yeah, let me, let me think about what, what might be something like that's not overly um, lengthy. Uh, I have some other questions for you actually on the serious side. So I think tying it into the books that I'm reading for my thesis, maybe I can kill two birds with one stone. So I, that sounds right to me. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's um, connect after, after class. Um, all right. So how about this? Let's say the 19th as the due date. And then if, if you want to, um, you know, request an extension or whatever, I'm, I'm pretty amenable. The reason I don't really want to make it through the 26th in general is because I, I do prefer that it not, you know, be um, competing with, you know, your bandwidth to prepare for the final exam, which is going to be, uh, you know, pretty a pretty important piece of the course. So um, we'll say it's the 19th, but again, I'm happy to talk to anybody that has specific concerns about about that deadline. Uh, I'm willing to work with with you. Okay. Any questions in general about the um, any of this, the assignment itself? Great. Thank you. In that case, I think we can. Um, Moving to our first out, outline then, which is great, um, on the early church. So I'll continue to post these, um, you know, when we have a new a new one in that same section on Populi um, in the files or whatever section. Um, and basically, as the as the um, you know the outline suggests, we're going to look at at the early church. Um, a little bit less, I think I mentioned this before, a little bit less at, at the, you know, the time, you know, the, during the life of Christ, if you will, um, in this, in the sense that it's, it's, um, some ways challenging to, to, um, fit all of the historical developments in as it is. And so even though obviously, you know, the life of Jesus is very important, um, I'm sort of banking on that being covered. In, in other courses, um, and, and this is really church history, which, sort of, again, it's not to say that the life of Christ isn't important, of course it is, but uh, we're, we're going to focus more on sort of the, the context leading up to uh, the time of Jesus and then the aftermath of, uh, of his life in the first, first few centuries, which were uh, certainly marked by, by many, many challenges um, for this young church but before we get to that it's i think worth setting the scene a little bit in terms of you know what what are some of the um different intellectual currents or philosophical currents swirling around what are the influences that we ought to um, be thinking about with respect to um, the early church and um Actually, I think, you know, in terms of the, where I want to start, I'll, I'll talk about sort of Greek and Roman influences first, and then um, shift to the, the, the Jewish context um, leading into Christ. So I think it's reversed on the outline. But um, taking a step back, the, the geographical 
uh, situation. I mean, I think we have some sense. You know, we're talking about the Middle East, um, and the at the time of uh, at the time of Christ, this is part of the um, the Roman Empire, um, and so there's one Roman emperor, but then a series of provinces that, that are, um, you know, largely um, autonomous. They're obviously you know, under the control of the emperor, but the uh, respective governors have a lot of a lot of influence. Um, and then a, another key point just at the outset is there's tremendous um, variety and and um, sort of diversity, if you will, in, in the realm of religion throughout the Roman Empire. Um, so it's not um, it's not particularly uniform. Uh, you know, you have, and we'll we'll talk about some of these here in a second. But it's just an area uh, as a region or as an empire, I should say. It's it's uh, very uh, diverse in terms of religion, the two sort of dominant uh, shaping forces on the, the religious and cultural aspects in the in the period, you know, second century, let's say, in first century BC, leading up to time Christ were obviously the period of Greek dominance and then leading into the, uh, the dawn of the Roman Empire. So I like to start start there. Um, when we, when we think about the course, because I think there are certain aspects of the classical culture, classical Greece and Rome, that um, are really critical to understanding the early church and to understanding the development of, of Christianity. Um, so, as far as uh, as far as the influence of Greek ideas, um, you know, it's it's um, largely in the philosophical realm that I that I want to um, just mention a few people that that are obviously I think very well known, but it's worth it's worth saying nonetheless. Um, of course, we have Socrates. Um, you know what I'm going to do is uh, some of these names that aren't on on your outline. I'll just type them into the thing. Um, I don't like the first outline to be like overly detailed with lots of names because I, I mean, it's just I don't want want to overwhelm you and scare you into dropping the course. That that wouldn't, wouldn't be achieving my objectives. So um, it's a little bit slimmed down. Um, but Socrates was, uh, you know, one of the sort of early great thinkers of the of the ancient world. Um, uh, you know, there's so much we could say, but for our purposes, I want to highlight. Um, you know, a tremendous amount of thought that was given by Socrates to understanding um, people, understanding man. And uh, for Socrates, and, and really all those who come after will be influenced to varying degrees by him, um, you know, he, he was focused on the connection of knowledge with right action, with proper action. And, and for him, that meant, um, you know, you had to uh, sort of use your your mind, your reason, in order to know how to, to live. 
and he uh, you know focused on what we will come to know as sort of the natural virtues so for socrates virtue uh, you know was the key and there were four the four key virtues um prudence temperance fortitude and justice And I mean, part of the reason I'm, I'm fo- I mean, there's a lot you can say about Socrates. I'm focusing on just one very narrow aspect of his thought. But the reason I'm focusing on it, I mean, no surprise, is because this is basically adopted wholesale by, by the early Christian in terms of uh, constructing a Christian morality. Um, you know, they were very familiar with, with the importance of the virtues. Now, they're not going to adopt them without you know, some additional adaptation, namely you know, theological, so-called theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, but um, nevertheless, the, the, the groundwork for a lot of uh, Christian moral thinking is, is really laid in the, in the ancient world. So these four virtues are, are really the key to um, living, living a good life and, and helping you know, men and women to reach their highest potential. Socrates' great student, um, his chief um, disciple was Plato. By the way, we're in like the 400s to 300s BC, just to situate where we are chronologically. Plato was more um, spiritually driven not driven spiritually uh his his meditations his thought and philosophy tended to be a little bit more in this in the spiritual realm than his than his teacher um socrates sometimes he's described that i like this himself it's it's funny because you know we you read plato as a philosopher but um one author describes him as having a mystical piety and I kind of like that. I mean, there was something very um, detached from from the, the uh, material world that, that obviously guided Plato's thinking, and, and he did have a kind of mystical quality to it. And you know, he again, there's so many things I could say about all these great thinkers, uh, but I'm I'm just going to focus on you know snippets. Of course, Plato was known for. You know, his great work of political philosophy, the Republic. But for our purposes here, I would say, you know, his his um, philosophical insight on the idea of, you know, forms or or um, you know, sort of the this abstraction from the material world that exists in the in the spiritual realm is, um, you know, something that's going to influence Christianity. So what do I mean by that? Um, so Plato was sort of less less interested in or moved by um, the the physical or material world. He thought that those things, the things that we see, the things that you can touch right now, um, that that they were really just um, sort of passing phenomena that didn't really have they really didn't get at the essence of reality. And so he sees them rather as, as kind of like reflections of 
a whole spiritual realm. And, and so, uh, for example, I'm well, you can't tell, but I'm sitting on a chair, right? And I'm, I can touch the chair, and um, you know, it's got four legs, it's got a back. That's that's all good. It's a chair, but Plato's point is that um, the highest, and it's not a particularly good chair, you know, to be honest. Um, it's fine. It creaks a little bit. You know, some of the bolts are loose. Um, but if I wanted to understand what the sort of perfect chair is, in Plato's view, you actually could not create. Uh, you could not find such a chair on Earth. Like in, in the material world, uh, there's always going to be some way in which um, the chair is somehow less than like the perfect attainment of itself. And Plato's sort of proposition was that in this spiritual realm is a kind of ideal. And we might, I mean, it sounds kind of clumsy almost, but we might call it, you know, the ideal chair or chairness from which all chairs are a kind of reflection to, to better or worse degrees. You know, so you might have a stool, you know, that's like so-so. Um, you know, you might have like a, a throne. That's a pretty good attainment of chairness, but not all the way. The point isn't to like actually measure these. It's just to say that he, he maintained that this sort of spiritual conception of a thing is the highest, um, the highest attainment or the most complete understanding of the thing. And, um, so for, for, for people, you know, this leads to his, his theory that, that the soul is what's really critical. Um, you know, the soul is not, uh, you know, is not, I, I can't point to it on, on myself. Um, it doesn't exist in the sort of physical material realm, but nevertheless, it, it does exist. It is a real thing in the sort of spiritual uh, realm that, that is the, the highest uh, conception of who we are as people. And then the last thing I want to say about Plato before I pause is, and, and see if there are questions or comments, is um, from Plato we also get the, the um, I, sort of idea that, that there are three sort of highest, uh, uh, three highest ideas, if you will. Um, we call them now the transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, that, that truth, beauty, and goodness are the three sort of most important um, characteristics or ideas, I should say, that, that exist. And so, um, you know, that, that framework, that schematic, if you will, of the, the transcendentals is going to be very, also very influential on, um, on the development of Christianity, to be sure. Um, before I go on to Aristotle, let, let me pause there. I know it's, um, so the good news is this, this is like the first half an hour of the class. It, this, this lecture is a lot more fun when it's, um, the Saturday morning group out at Huntington. Uh, be, uh, I don't know, you know, I often teach this same course, uh, Saturday mornings to the diaconate candidates for Rockville center. And we meet from like eight thirty to 11 or 1130. 
And so it's really fun because you should see people's reactions to like going over uh, Platonism at, at 8.45 on a Saturday. I mean, it is, it is tough. Um, one year, for some reason, I got a little bit, I don't know how, why this is the case, but I was actually talking about this part in an evening class. And it was like after nine o'clock, before 9.30, but after nine. And I thought, boy, I, I really know how to, how to, um, to time these things out, to, to be going into this really dense kind of abstract stuff. Um, you know, at, at that moment in time is, is probably not, not the best idea. So I feel good that we're talking about this, uh, you know, it's before, even before eight o'clock I and mean, this is great. Everybody should be right on top of it. Right. <laughs> any questions? So in, in all seriousness, any questions so far about Plato and Socrates? Chris, did you have some? It's just when I see someone come off mute, I don't know if that's because um. Oh no no. I just got back, so I was. Okay, no problem. No problem. I just don't want to. Um... No, sorry. Yeah, uh, I mean the question, of course, is is it really a chair, right? If we're going to Socrates. Yeah. This is Rob. I've got a question. Um, by the time a little bit later on, even with the church fathers. Were they, were they aware of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle? Did they have the familiarity with, you know, like the Republic or some of these other uh, books? Yeah, excellent question. Um, the, the, um, the one that, that they were most familiar with, and this is, I mean, it's no accident in a sense that, that the early Christian theologians are, are by far the most shaped by him. The one that had the most sort of um, widespread um, currency in sort of the intellectual world of the first two centuries was Plato. So, you know, a lot of the early Christian theologians and, you know, the fathers of the church are to varying degrees, um, sometimes they're called Neoplatonists, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, but they were certainly by, by, uh, sort of intellectual heritage, the most, um, influenced by, to the extent that they, you know, incorporated some aspects of his thought by Plato. Um, you know, that it's hard to say about specific works the way we think about them now. Um, but, but probably his major, you know, his major works were more or less extant, we think. Um, you know, and in, in, in limited ways were passed on, um, and and so uh, it's, it's you know Plato was seen for a long time to have kind of surpassed his his teacher um, in, in Socrates, and, and so uh, Socrates was less influential uh, going forward. Aristotle, who I'm about to mention very briefly, you know, the fascinating um, piece about Aristotle is. He's really not known um, by the early Christian, um, you know, by the fathers of the church or by the early Christian um, theologians, because he just wasn't, you know, he hadn't um, maintained the kind of influence in the intellectual cultural culture of the day. To the extent that the um, philosophy of Aristotle will become tremendously influential in Christianity, especially Roman Catholicism, a little less so in Protestantism. Um, 
is a function of actually the Islamic world and um, you know later developments that we'll get to in the Middle Ages with respect to um, you know the development of trade routes and in even the the Crusades as it turns out and and that one of the um, sort of pot uh, you know I have a much more nuanced take on this when we get there but one of the sort of positive things that that transpires from from that whole era is as the world opens up you know some ideas that were less known in the west come to the west and it's actually islamic scholars that uh you know for for centuries carried on the thought of aristotle and were far more influenced by him than than anyone in the west and then in the you know 10th 11th 12th century um, as you know, uh, Islam and Christianity came into increasing conflict. Frankly, um, there was also greater intellectual exchange, and um, it's no accident, for example, that that uh, Saint Thomas, you know, in, in in all of his works, when he's talking about Aristotle, you know, he calls him the philosopher, but he also has a name, the commentator. And the commentator, the person to whom he's referring to, is a, a Islamic scholar called Averroes, and, um, and and again, he was seen as sort of the the most um, the most um, well regarded interpreter of Aristotle's thought, you know, in the Islamic world. And so, um, it's a long answer to your question, but I like to, I like mentioning that because it's it's a little bit. Um, you know, a sort of interesting historical reality, how we tend to think so much of, uh, about so much of Christian theology or modern Catholic theology in the Aristotelian framework. Uh, you know, that's what scholasticism and neo-scholasticism, you know, largely rely upon. Um, and, and, um, and yet, if it was largely absent from the very early church, it was much more platonic, um, and, and it's only a function of the Islamic world's kind of maintenance or maintaining of, of Aristotelian thought that the Christians came in contact with them. Well, one thing that's interesting uh, that I thought was interesting with Vidmar in the book was that uh, he talked about the fact that up until Constantine, that the primary focus on the Christians were just trying to stay alive, persecutions. I mean, they, they really, if you took from the time of St. Paul, you know, up till Constantine, the, their, their only focus was trying to stay alive and keep from being killed. That's right. For the most part, and that they really didn't even have a chance to start thinking about this until the second stage with the fathers. You know, and then with the fathers, with Augustine and those, you go on from there. Excellent point. Thanks for raising it. I mean, I think it's... Um... You know, it speaks to that point that you don't get the first ecumenical councils until, um, you know, you know, ten years or so, twelve years, whatever, after Constantine. Three twenty-five. Yeah, after Constantine sort of uh, takes control of things, and it's it's no longer um, a crime <laughs> to be a Christian. Um, some of these debates can can be, you know, really, um, uh, you know, much more thoroughly. Um, joined and and uh, can come out into the public. And whereas you know there there were obviously some, and we'll look at some of the, the apologists and, and some of the early Christian writers who are doing their best. 
but in any kind of coordinated way, you know, to develop a kind of theological system um, and, and any kind of common reflection, it just was not uh, not a priority because, as you say, you know, staying well, the alive. Early, the early writers were trying to fight the heresies more than anything else. Yeah, that's right. Well, and a lot of a lot of the early theological developments were in response to or a kind of defensive um, clarifications, if you will, to, not in a bad way, but to, you know, people saying, well, this is what Christianity is. And those that were, you know, in the tradition of the apostles saying, well, actually, it's it's not. Um, and, you know, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit when we talk about, like, the formation of the canon and, and everything like that, um, how that was so much a function of Know, Marcion and, uh, and other Gnostics saying you know, it did these additional Gospels really get at what what Jesus was all about, and and the the uh, successors to the apostles saying no, actually, uh, you know that's not what he was about, um, or, or or what have you. I mean, this gets into like um, you know Da Vinci Code territory, right, with the Gnostics, and the Gnostic Gospel, and all of that. Um, excellent. So. Uh, just to just to mention, I mean, I've said said plenty, if you will, um, but uh, for our purposes right now. But though he won't be influential yet, as we just said, Aristotle, you know, is is um, Aristotle is um, in this sort of pre in this BC era, um, you know, a very important Greek philosopher was much more focused on kind of reality and and you know what was uh, apparent to the to the um you know to the eye to the senses than than plato who was you know much more kind of abstract and, and thinking about that um i mean there's so much great stuff about aristotle but for example you know he's he's very um important in in almost anticipating certain kinds of arguments for the existing uh, existence of God that will be, be refined heavily in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, for Aristotle, his his um, framework was was uh, like the prime mover. And so he's, he's noticing, you know, things are put in motion. Something has to put an object into motion. But that object had to, it's almost like cause and effect, right? Every, you know, uh, for every effect, there must be a cause, but then you kind of wind back that that cycle infinitely. Um, everything that was put in motion had to be put in, some, in motion by something else. Um, and so, for Aristotle, he he can you know kind of get back to this point of a kind of unmoved mover or prime mover. And um, you know, a lot of medieval proofs for the existence of God are, are going to be heavily heavily influenced by by his, um, his thinking. Okay. Um, so those are the sort of the three great Greek philosophers. Um, but I think also important in terms of the, the let's say, contribution, if you will, of, um, of the Greek, ancient Greek world to Christianity also comes in the form of uh, sort of systems of morality, 
uh, one of which will be very, I would say, fairly influential. The other of which is is more like a counter counterpoint or a, a sort of an opposition to early Christian morality. So the um, there there are two primary kind of moral systems that that we get from the ancient Greeks that, to, in many ways, kind of influence the Roman Empire as well. Um, and by, by virtue of that, kind of influenced the early, the early Christians. So the first um, is, is um, named after a guy called Epicurus, and the system itself is sometimes called Epicureanism. I will warn you, you'll, you'll see that spelled um, a number of different ways. Sometimes it's spelled you know, with an E instead of the second I is an E. But anyway, the point is not to get bogged down in those things. Um, Epicurus and Epicureanism, um, if I had to simplify it into like a, a sentence, which is always dangerous, um, but, but the, the um, you know, one way of thinking about it might be that um, bliss or happiness is the highest, is the highest aim of man, people. Now, one of the things that's tricky, and I don't think I mentioned this in our first meeting, so I guess forgive me if I did, because I'm going to say it again, but I don't think I did. You know, we have this real problem in sort of studying the history of ideas, which is part of, you know, what we're doing here, which is that a lot of times, like, systems or ideas or ideologies get named after a person who kind of is credited with being the originator of those ideas, but they come to take on a meaning significantly different and sometimes drastically different than what the original person actually actually um, intended. And so you have this really difficult dilemma when you're doing, you know, when you're studying history in terms of how you think about, um, you know, these, these, these individuals and then, and then the ideological system or whatever that's attached to their name. So Epicurus is a good example of this. So Epicureanism, you know, the, the system of morality, if you will, um, that bears his name, you know, by the time of Christ, let's say, or even the first century BC, Epicurus lived probably in the 300s to late 200s BC. So like fast forward 150 years or so, Epicureanism is, uh, best summarized by the, you know, eat, drink, and be merry kind of, uh, for tomorrow you'll die kind of philosophy. Even today, people sometimes think that that's, you know, an Epicurean philosophy is a kind of um, sensual pursuit of pleasure, you know, food, sex, whatever, those are the, um, you know, the highest ends, and you ought to just pursue them um, if you want to be happy. So that's, that's the system if you will, that, that bears his name. But if you go back and, and actually look at Epicurus himself, um, his conception of, of um, 
happiness, of bliss, uh, of pleasure, was a deeply kind of passive, uh, passive state, almost like a, a separation from the world that would bring on uh, a kind of happiness. In other words, instead of instead of being the sort of active pursuit of, you know, ribeye steak and you know really good wine or something, uh, it would be the absence of something that of anything that disturbs or annoys a person. And so it's not it's not so much eat, drink, and be merry as it is. Um, re- remove yourself or, or, or become separated from anything that will bother and annoy you. It's, it's a much more passive kind of separated philosophy than an active pursuit of pleasures. What's fascinating too, again, to, to kind of keep on this theme, Epicurus himself was like, uh, kind of, you know, he lived almost like a monk, you know, like a, Later on, we would say, like, the way the, the, the ascetical lifestyle, I mean, he barely, um, you know, it seems to have barely engaged in any kind of worldly, you know, pursuits or, 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 or uh, pleasures, was much more kind of, a, you know, quiet, reserved, monk-like uh, in his conception of the absence of, you know, suffering, annoyance, whatever you want to call it. But those who came after him sort of seize on this one aspect, which is that that the idea that the highest aim of a person is is happiness. And for for those that came after him, um, it seemed easier to attain that happiness um, by pursuing kind of sensual pleasures. And so we're left with this um, situation where as a morality, this is very influential in, especially in kind of elite circles in the ancient world. Um, you know, there, there wasn't a particular sense in which um, self-denial or, or any of that was, was particularly appealing to, to those that were influenced by Epicureanism. Um, but if you could go back and look at Epicurus himself, he wasn't really calling for what they wound up sort of uh, developing into a, a moral system. Just as an aside, I mean, there are so many examples of this, and we'll touch on a number of them in, in our course, um, especially heresies, to be, to be honest, where the, you know, three or four generations later, um, a, a, a specific heresy might bear a little resemblance to what the initial um, person was teaching. Um, even, even take an example like, uh, Calvinism, you know, which is something that, you know, we still have with us, obviously, um, and is an important Protestant denomination. I mean, when you, when we say Calvinism, the, one of the first sort of theological things you, you might think of if you study, you know, uh, depending on where you study, I guess, but you might think of, um, have you ever heard of Tulip? With Calvinism, it's like these five points of Calvinism: um, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, um, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. It's like this five-point plan that sort of stands for Calvin's thought, and that's all very nice. And you know, tulips are pretty flowers, and like it's all good, right? But 
but that was something that was developed um, about 85 years after Calvin, uh, 75 years or so after Calvin, you know, was living and writing. And some of it doesn't even seem likely to have been, you know, totally congruent with some of his views. And so you have this situation where even, you know, three generations later, um, the system that bears this guy's name doesn't exactly reflect his his own theology. Um, I don't have a, a really penetrating conclusive, conclusive point to make, except it's just something that's that's kind of you have to wrestle with as, as you go through that these these uh, ideas or, or belief systems often become separated in some ways and divergent from uh, those that initially developed them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if on the one hand we have Epicureanism as a as a influential moral system that will will um, you know be pretty uh, pretty important in the you know first century second and first centuries BC and then even in the first two centuries AD. The counterpoint to that, that that really comes from the ancient world, and one that will be, you know, I think much more influential on the development of Christian morality, is Stoicism. And Stoicism is, again, another another one of these systems where we have to be a little bit careful about what we mean. Because today, in, in, in our language, we have kind of um, this this word, you know, stoic or stoical, um, is part of our vocabulary, like a, as an adjective, you know, somebody who's stoic, um, you know, doesn't doesn't show emotion, right? Um, sort of bears everything that comes their way, you know, and you know doesn't just is like stoic, right? Like the Oh, oh my gosh! Like the guards at Buckingham Palace or whatever. You know what I mean? Like um, the, nothing you can do will get them to flinch, um, or or uh, you know, this sort of idea of the person that no matter what what happens, good or bad, they never they never show any emotion. They're just kind of stone faced. Now that that comes from someplace, but that's not really what Stoicism was about in the ancient world. Um, basically the, the, um, sort of guiding principle of stoicism as it was developed again in, in ancient Greece. And then this was very influential in, in the Roman empire as well was, um, sort of much more about containing one's emotions and, and, um, you know, sort of living, and this is where, again, to kind of go back, this is where, um, uh, you know, the virtues developed, um, you know, are, are tremendously important by, by Socrates. Um, it was sort of living with your emotions under control, and then according to the virtues, um, which is to say, especially the virtue of temperance was, was critical for the, the Stoics because it was, it was the way that we, 
Um, it was the way that we kind of get control of get control of our passions. Um, so this, the you know if, if we think about the passions as they exist for everyone, uh, the Epicurean mindset came to be something like you know follow your passions. You know, in, in, uh, what's the word? You know, go, go for it. You know, just just um, allow yourself to you know have that fourth piece of cake or, or whatever. Um, the Stoics thought that the danger was that the passions kind of distort our reason. And there's a great sort of premium on, on among Stoics uh, on the use of reason. And so, you know, that longing for, uh, you know, the piece of cake or whatever will distort our reasoning about, you know, what we should do in a given moment, either, either, or, or, you know, that, that desire to, um, uh, you know, engage, you know, in, in some kind of sexual liaison will pervert what reason says our obligations are to our family, let's say. And so for the Stoics, um, the, the reason they have this reputation for being kind of un, unemotional it's 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 mistaken but it, it the reason is because they did think that it was critical to um develop a, a kind of self-control and a self-mastery of your of your passions such that you you wouldn't give in if you will to you know the passion for uh, you know another woman or something or or for excess food and drink or, or whatever the you know case may be so it is kind of a um morality that sought to to really emphasize self-control and that included self-denial at times um but it wasn't anti-emotional if you will it was looking to constrain emotion within the boundaries of reason The um, point here, I, I think, to, to, to notice is Stoicism is going to be tremendously influential in the, um, sort of the early Christian thinking about morality. Obviously, they're going to have a plenty of challenging moral teachings from Christ, but, but outside of that, um, if, you, if you want to look for influences in, in sort of the first few centuries, I think Stoicism, and e even with it with St. Paul, I mean, it's very likely that Paul himself was um, outside of this sort of Jewish upbringing, was, was quite familiar with the teachings of Stoics and was likely influenced by them. And so this kind of um, self-denial, self uh, you know, self-control would, would be... Um, utilized in, in certain ways by the early Christians and, and it in many senses originated with Stoics. Okay, um, let me pause there. Any questions? Great. It actually takes me like a minute now because there's so many people to like look through and see if anyone has unmuted their microphone. Um, 
two two other points about sort of the the Greek and Roman influence that I'd like to make before we turn to the sort of Jewish context. Um, The first one is it, it, it crosses over both classical Greece, like the Greek Empire of Alexander, and then into the Roman Empire. It's not one or the other, but they, they both sort of um, they both sort of uh, you know have this system, which is that apart from these kind of competing moral systems that we just talked about, Stoicism and Epicureanism, uh, the vast majority of the people, when it came to kind of religious beliefs were were um poly polytheistic right and they were polytheistic in a way that i i think we have some familiarity with with the 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 greek mythology right so you have all sorts of gods and goddesses that that um you know have different areas of influence or power if you will um, you know, the, the main kind of the big guy for the Greeks was Zeus in, in Latin. This gets sort of transposed in, in the Roman world to, to Jupiter. Um, um, you, but you have, you know, lots of other, you know, all, all the great uh, Apollo and, and um, Venus, Aphrodite, you know, lot, lot, all of the sort of the whole sweep of mythology, Greek mythology, is getting after sort of telling stories about the activities of these various gods and goddesses in in the world, in, in the life of, of people. And, you know, this was a very widespread religious sentiment in the ancient world. And it, it was it was very common, you know, for example, to have um, you know, sp- specific gods or goddesses to whom one was devoted, like within a given town, for example, or or city, let's say. Um, you know, specific trades would have um, you know god, a god or a goddess that they thought was sort of you know. So Ceres is the god of like the harvest, right? Where it gets cereal, and um, and you know, if Ceres was unhappy, if, if somebody, you know, um, didn't offer appropriate reverence, let's say, then the, you know, the harvest might might be um, blighted uh, or in some way, you know, not come uh, come to fruition, if you will. Um, you know, if, if there's a drought, you know, it could be this god or that god. Um, and so... You know, if there's a, if you were a sailor, the Venus was the god of the sea, and so goddess of the sea, and so you know you might face all of these storms and be shipwrecked and stuff because, um, you know, some for some reason there was a desire among uh, among the, the gods to, to punish, and so um, it wasn't just. You know, a city or, or a town would have its own god or goddess. The various trades, if you will, or professions would have um, similar devotion, if you will. Um, you know, moments at various moments in time, like through the life cycle, um, 
you know, like a childbirth, for example, you know, certain gods or goddesses might be more, uh, you, you might offer a special sacrifice, you know, for a good, uh, for a healthy child, uh, child to be born or for, you know, for marriage. And, and so the point here is that, um, this sort of, uh, mindset, if you will, was, was very common, was very widespread and is something that kind of fast forward for a second, you know, is, is a real challenge for the early Christians in, in trying to work with, uh, you know, in, in trying to, um, uh, bring about the conversion of, you know, Gentiles and pagans in this case, you know, the idea of just having one God was, was really challenging. Um, but also though, there was such a, a mentality of having gods and goddesses for, you know, specific things. And, and that, that aspect of, you know, the ancient worldview was one that certainly had to be encountered and, and dealt with by, um, by the early church. Now, it's, it's, I think you, you, you probably see where, where this is going. Um, one of the ways that the early church deals with this is, you know, through the example of, uh, you know, holy men and women and, and this idea of, um, you know, adapting to some degree, uh, you know, this idea, almost idea of patronage to like the, the development of um, early saints and, and you know the patron saying of of this or that thing. I want to be careful. What I'm I'm not saying that this was just like a, a, a move to um, you know a move to kind of co-opt the ancient religiosity you know and, and just put like a Christian sticker on over top of it. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is. You know, to use a, a concept that, uh, you know, comes from later, later Christian theologies that, you know, grace builds on nature, right? Builds upon and perfects nature. And so the idea that the early church needed to have some awareness of meeting sort of the, the worldviews of, of those that they were coming into contact with um, and finding ways to kind of help shape um a new way of thinking about things. So it's, it's not that, you know, for a good harvest, there's a God or goddess in, in, in charge of that. The early church would say, you know, there's one God and, and he's sort of Lord over everything. But because there was such a, a kind of habituated um, custom in, in the ancient world around these things, they realized that, well, this this person who's clearly a person, who's clearly not a god, um, could could also be um, useful in in sort of helping petition God for whatever it is that you want uh, to to ask for, you know, for a good harvest or whatever. You could ask, you know, Saint So and So, you know, to intercede on your behalf. Again, this doesn't sort of happen immediately right away. I don't I don't want to give that impression, but. I'm dwelling on this point because I do think it's important to understand, you know, to some degree, you know, where did the early, where, where do we, 
get this kind of development of the cult of the saints and having patron saints and, and whatever. And I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that it built it built upon a kind of mentality that existed going back to the ancient sort of world and its its polytheistic um, mindset that saw a connection between you know your city or your trade or whatever and 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 this sort of higher power so for for the early church they had to encounter that and and, and find a way to deal with it and then the last thing i'll say before um i pause for questions and then we'll take a break is and this is much more a sort of feature of the roman empire and will be one especially in the you know from the first century on ad is when it comes to um sort of thinking about religion in the ancient world, in the ancient pagan world outside of Judaism, um, a key development is the um, creation, if you will, of the, the state, the you know, the empire, if you will, or the in this case, the emperor as a god. So you get the kind of worship, <clears throat> the worship of the state, um, as a key aspect of the ancient sort of uh, religiosity. It's, it's not just that you have like the array of gods that we know from mythology. On top of that, you have, um, in one case, the, I mean, the, 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 uh, the worship of the state, the nations typically are, are feminine, right? So you have Dea Roma, Dea Roma the goddess Rome um, in the second century BC. Eventually, and we'll see this, I think I'll mention it again, but eventually you have this sort of abstract view that like Rome is, there's sort of this, this goddess Rome, that, that there's a divinization of, of the nation. Eventually that, that seems a little bit um, too abstract. And so a way to make that more concrete and more immediate is to view the emperor as a god as well the emperor that's sort of uh, responsible for carrying forward this divine nation. Um, and so we see that with the, um, you know, especially in the, the first century and then in the first few centuries BC and then the first few centuries AD. That's a key part of the, the persecutions is that the emperor was, you, you know, because the emperor was divinized, became a god, you then had to offer sacrifice. That's, you know, the early Christians will run into problems with that. But the worship of the state, um, you know, is, is also an important, uh, an important um, aspect of, of ancient culture. Okay. Well, let me pause there. Any questions? When you were talking about the saints, okay, Are you, you made it sound almost a little bit like the iconoclasm, where the iconoclasts, where the uh, you know people were starting to worship the saints to a certain degree. Is that the level that you're talking about? Um, well, I would say this. You know, I, the the development of sort of the what we might call the cult of the saints, and, and again, cult isn't used in a pejorative way here. It's just a descriptive. Um, is, is certainly one that's 
as it runs through church history is you you know can can get a little bit um can get a little bit out of hand in i i wasn't um you know necessarily making a particular claim about you know sort of how how saints were viewed in the early church i would say that there were moments where you know there was a real danger of sort of veering into a kind of worship of the saints that was um you know, sort of over over the line, if you will, um, in terms of ha- making them as if a god. But but my the point I was trying to uh, raise is that the the early Christian church had to contend with a prevailing culture that was very accustomed to, um, you know, the idea of having a patron god or goddess of farmers and you know your city or whatever and so to have this idea of um you know a special protector or a person that was specially connected to your thing was very much in them in the worldview of you know the first few centuries ad into which the the church was emerging and one of the ways in which i think you know the early christians helped to helps to um, convert these sort of polytheistic worldview into a, a monotheistic um, but Trinitarian uh, belief was was by developing uh, um, this notion of, you know, the, the intercession of the saints, the cult of the saints around specific, you know, needs or, or whatever, because that that built upon a kind of inclination that existed within within the world within the ancient worldview again i want to be careful because it's you know it's easy to get carried away in into uh, a sort of i think place that i'm not trying to suggest and and make it seem like um again that there's just like a christian veneer on a kind of ancient paganism i think there are real distinctions in, in terms of like if you read peter brown who's the scholar par excellence on this um you know, his treatment of the early church and the cult of the saints, it makes it very clear that, you know, they weren't just replacing the, the you know, the God, the series as a God of the, the farming for farmers with, you know, with another saint, but they were, they were recognizing this sort of custom and, and finding a way to tend to it, if you will, while maintaining, uh, you know, a monotheistic religion. And so, I don't know. Is that does that help clarify it, Rob? I'm not sure if it, if it did. Yeah, no, that does. I'm just trying to make a distinction between where the separation came from. Yeah, and I mean, look, there. It, it's interesting because it's it's ironically, it, it, to some degree, a little bit later, where uh, later <laughs> by by that I mean like you know into the early Middle Ages and and even into the you know like the. 10th, 11th, 12th century, that you start to see some of the more, you know, difficult excesses around, around uh, the cult of the saints coming into play. And the church, you know, takes corrective action when, when she needs to, but like you have, uh, and I'm getting way ahead of ourselves, but it's it's okay. Um, Like the, the importance of relics in, in Christianity is, is really there from the beginning, but like you get these situations in the middle ages where, you know, three three different cities are claiming they have the same saint's hand or whatever, 
and so you know you have this real difficulty with kind of maintaining or containing um, you know the limits of appropriate um, you know appropriate use of sort of the, the veneration and intercession of the saints it's, it's not um, you know it's not without its difficulty but uh, from the from the beginning you know I, I think the the early church was you know particularly cautious in emphasizing the non-divinity if you will of these saints who could be helpers um, because you know the importance of maintaining one God in a world that was still largely polytheistic was you know was paramount Um, okay, so if we could, let's t- take a break. It's uh, 8.14, I see, in two places. So let's come back at 8.30. Sound good? Yep. Thanks, everyone. So a lot of uh, context setting, I think, today, you know, in, ter- ter- in terms of the background, because it just doesn't... Um, it just doesn't, uh, for me, seem like the, you know, the best. Oh, let me start the recording. Sorry. Approach to just kind of jump right in, uh, you know, to the early church or, or something like that without trying to survey the landscape a little bit. Um, and so that's that's what we'll continue to do here. Um, and so the other major, you know, piece of context to incorporate into our thinking about the ancient world and the world into which Christianity arises is um, the the, uh, the Jewish context, the, the influence of Judaism, uh, which is of course substantial and uh, you know, really quite quite significant. Um, so I'm not going to give you uh, you know the entire rundown. Uh, there's this. Um, slightly lengthy book called the old testament uh if you're interested in that um there's lots of uh juicy stories in there and then there's lots of pretty boring stuff too um if i can say that um but uh overall um you know, if, father monaco hears you, if father monaco hears you you're in trouble <laughs> fair enough fair enough no, I, I really do, and I, I enjoy reading, you know, 60 pages straight of, uh, you know, Levitical or Deuteronomical law and all of that stuff. Just gripping. Um, but the point is, the, uh, you know, the story of the Jewish people, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to try and, and summarize it, except to say that in, in our context, um, it's important to sort of note the way in which the the Jewish people were kind of constantly um, struggling under various regimes, right? The, the various uh, political powers that, that rose and fell, um, you know, from Assyria to the Persians to Alexander the Great. Um, you know, there, there are any number of, of periods, uh, you know, with where they enjoyed um, varying degrees, typically not much, of, of freedom or based, um, you know, increased amounts of 
persecution. One thing that's impressive as we get closer to our our sort of time at the beginning of, of the church, if you will, like first century BC, first century AD, in the Roman Empire, um, the the Jews have been pretty successful at carving out um, a good amount of autonomy, right? In terms of, um, you know, being able to, as long as they, you know, didn't cause trouble, you know, didn't undermine the, the Roman em- emperor, um, you know, they were more or less uh, able to operate uh, according to their to their own own law, um, and so a lot of the religious requirements that that existed in the Roman Empire, for example, that the Jews were exempted from, um, and so they they were able to, uh, you know, as we get closer to our period, um, obtain a certain degree of <clears throat> of autonomy. Um, there are a number of, you know, just to set the context for, for first century, uh, in terms of summarizing or, or just going over a few high points around, you know, things that I'm guessing you probably know well, um, you know, you have uh, a hereditary priesthood in, in Judaism, so you have priestly families. And this um, creates a kind of natural hereditary aristocracy within Judaism. And again, it, it, it comes and goes. It's, it's hard to summarize, but uh, at various points, you know, those, those high priests, um, you know, can, can, be, um, can be more or less religiously inclined or politically inclined. And sometimes those things were in harmony and sometimes they were intention. And so at times, you know, you have the sort of priestly families um, seemingly more interested in sort of the, the political future of the Jewish people than, than maybe, uh, and, and less con- seemingly less concerned with you know, sort of the religious uh, aspect. You know, they were tremendously influential um, and, and well off, you know, and so, you know, this is an important sort of social group. Um, they administered the, you know, the temple and, and were, were essentially in charge of, of the religious life of Jewish people. Um, one thing that, that uh, develops over time is a, a large and I mean, large uh, body of uh, interpretation, a legal interpretation of, of the Jewish law that that um, emerges you know, over centuries. Really, the scribes are the um, you know interpreters, key interpreters, and there are a number of sort of religious um, you know. Religious interpretations that that will will uh, develop and and kind of become influential within within Judaism. Um, again, thinking just more strictly about the um, 
thinking more strictly about the the period in in the first century BC and first century AD, um, you have a couple groups. Um, I lost my chat box. Hang on. Um, the Sadducees um, being one of the uh, important sort of groups or political parties. Almost, I don't. I shouldn't have said political party, but they're quasi. Uh, function they they function somewhat like that um, as a group of sort of leading families essentially that were again kind of aristocratic um, the Sadducees were it, it's a somewhat complicated story that if if, if you don't mind I'm, I'm gonna kind of gl- glide over it has to do with the Maccabees and the revolt of the Maccabees and a split in the hereditary priesthood. Uh, and, and the sort of the royal line and and I don't want to go into all, all of that um, since it's uh, already 840 but uh, suffice it to say you know they're one of the parties sort of one of the groups competing for, for influence and the Sadducees were um, sort of I'm going to use this the very this word very carefully they were sort of like the conservative party this sort of conservative group in that they really were proponents of the kind of um, older um, understanding of Jewish law, and they weren't particularly, well, I should say stronger than that. They did not uh, really accept the, um, all of the, the whole body of legal interpretation that, that had uh, unfolded over generations. Um, the Sadducees weren't really interested in they, they rejected most of it and they thought the old law itself was um, was sufficient and so they had a, a sort of particular they themselves had a particular kind of an understanding of what the old law said and, and so among the things that you know were characteristic of the beliefs of the Sadducees include the denial of um, of the resurrection or uh, sort of any kind of personal immortality. Dr. Dan, uh, know that you're getting very, very close to a Father O'Reilly joke about this. Oh, it's it's already there. So the, they're, the fact that they didn't believe in the resurrection is why they were always sad, you see? Yes. That's uh, that seems like a classic. I, I've I've heard that from a number of people, and without any any bit of shame, have have used it basically every year. Um, interestingly, it was a history professor I heard I first heard it from, who was not a not a theologian. So there you go. Um, I think Bob O'Reilly made it up. Probably. I, I'm happy to credit credit it to him. <clears throat> That joke even made it into one of his eulogies. It, it really? Oh yeah. That's right. His brother told it. Yeah. I don't remember if it was Friday or Saturday. Friday. Um. So. Uh, the other sort of, and, and the Sadducees were less numerous, I would say. Um. You know, they weren't. They, they, they had a certain amount of power uh, politically, but 
they didn't represent uh, a huge portion, if you will, in terms of their, their approach or their belief system was a minority view. Um, the other, you know, another major group, uh, one that I think we're probably a little bit more familiar with, uh, is the, was the Pharisees. I guess just for consistency's sake, I'll type it in here. The Pharisees were um, I, I like this phrase, it's not my own, but I'm, I'm using it. They were sort of proponents of um, a sort of democratic legalistic attitude. What I mean by, or what, what, what is meant by that is that, you know, this sort of whole body of interpretation of Jewish law, um, you know, there were lots of competing interpretations and, and whatever, but over time, you know, there was a sense of, um, there was a sense of, you know, the dominant interpretation kind of uh, representing the, the um, consensus view almost of majority view in, in generations past. Um, and it was sort of seen as quasi democratic in the sense of representing the will of, of the people. Uh, but it was also very legalistic in that it was, it was very much, um, you know, tied to sort of interpreting these, it, well, by the time we get to Jesus's time, they're interpreting the interpreters. Um, you know, for sure. And so the, the Pharisees were, um, you know, like to portray themselves as sort of representing um, sort of the authoritative view of the majority of, of the uh, Israelites, if you will. And so <clears throat> they, um, you know, they tried to, to portray themselves as being you know, on the on the side, if you will, of, of the people, and they often were in struggles with Sadducees. Um, I'm going to say a little bit more about the Pharisees in a second, but let me just mention the Zealots as another group, um, um, because the Zealots often were break often were tied to the Pharisees, but kind of broke away. Um, um, and I mean, it's funny because we have this word in English. We kind of know what it what it means, but in the in the context here, they were people that um, the, the the zealots were sort of people of action, and they were really looking for um, uh, concrete political action, if you will, to to um, to bring about the restoration of. Of the, of the kingdom of Israel, and so they, they were often uh, seen by the Roman emperors as revolutionaries. Um, and again, there's a sort of a sm much smaller group, um, much smaller group. The, the, but going back to the Pharisees, um, again, they were heavily tied to sort of the precise keeping of certain interpretations of the Jewish law. We see all throughout, you know, the Gospels, right? Jesus 
critiquing them, uh, more than critiquing, criticizing them, reprimanding them, you know, uh, saying that they 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 put uh, too many burdens on people with these uh, with their insistence on on the exact uh, exact obedience or adherence to the law but um, apart from that they, they also represent uh, they also believe in you know in what I you know that in the Sadducee thing they believed in the resurrection of the body they believed in sort of eternal life either good or or bad you know heaven or hell um, and importantly um, the Pharisees also, um, you know, taught and, and proliferated the sort of messianic hope, the idea that there was a Messiah or there would be a Messiah that would, uh, you know, sort of save the, the Israelites and restore their uh, their kingdom. The so the, the Pharisees were, again, very influential, especially around the time of, of Christ in the early church. There were really two, and despite their sort of power, if you will, their, their influence, um, there were really two major shortcomings that, that led to its ultimate kind of um, failure, if you will, as a, as a, a system. Um, first of all, it, it viewed religion as... You know, almost entirely, kind of the uh, uh, keeping of external law and practices, um, and, and the, the earning of rewards. You know, kind of resulted from that. It was it was basically a, a, a almost entirely kind of external uh, um, emphasis that you had to do these things, um, and that emphasis tended to um, come at the expense of developing a kind of inward, um, you know, the the proper inward uh, disposition. And so it was much less about your, you know, sort of uh, personal Righteousness or, or inward spirit in terms of how you in your in your private thoughts think about God or, or you know what you uh, what your prayer prayer life is like internally and it was much more about you know did you do the things externally you're supposed to do and then connected to that sort of a second major you know challenge or problem if you will with with this. Uh, with, with the Pharisees was that their sort of worldview, the, the combination of keeping of the precise keeping of the law with the, the belief in, um, you know, the, the divine promise of the sort of this promise of a divine eternal uh, existence, you know, with God, sort of heaven. Um, they tended to to view it very attainment of that you know that um, uh, good you know that that happy eternal life 
they, they tended to view the, the way of attaining that in a very narrow fashion. And so any kind of imperfection in your keeping of the law, you know, if you didn't obey it uh, sort of perfectly almost, uh, you know, you would lose that inheritance. And, and this set up a, a, a practically impossible standard for most people follow and to live by and this is clearly um and, and i mean it's not just like you know you know bummer that you're you're missing out on something you're you're also going to sort of be in this eternal separation from god which is, you know, which is awful this is clearly part of you know the mentality that, that jesus is reacting against and, and criticizing it's, it's loading up with burdens on people and then telling them you know they're they're gonna uh, you know, suffer the separation from God as a result of you know their, their inability to abide by every last detail of, of this uh, of this law. So uh, those those are some of the major kind of groups, if you will. Um, it's also worth saying something I think that's that's often noted any kind of study of, of the state of Judaism around the time of Christ, which is that the, this messianic hope, the hope for a Messiah, tended, it was on a kind of upward trajectory, right, around the time of, around the time of Christ. It was something that ebbed and flowed with, or waxed and waned, however you want to say it, um, with the various states of um political oppression so when the jews were the most oppressed is when they tended to be most hopeful if you will about the coming of the messiah when things were comfortable more you know more comfortable let's say they they um, didn't emphasize that quite as much and so um with the coming under the roman the, the rule of the roman emperor um in 63 BC, um, and then having to deal with some very difficult sort of governors, their province, you know, that the the, um, the longing for a Messiah was was um, pretty significant at, at the end of the or at the close of the sort of first century BC, and of course the the um, the thinking was that this Messiah would would be, you know, largely of a political nature. That they would uh, lead the Jews out of sort of this situation of political captivity that they found themselves in into a, a place of freedom and and complete self governance. And so it was a, a kind of and, and also, frankly, thinking of the the sort of the um, the idea of the continuation of the Davidic sort of story, that you know, this David's uh, kingship was not was not just uh, sort of warm, touchy feely, peaceful. You know, it was like there was real um, struggle and war and, and sort of uh, winning, if you will, uh, kind of freedom. And so they they expected this kind of um, uh, political messiah that would then lead them to uh, sort of 
gold, a golden age of, of flourishing. Um, one last thing I want to mention about the Jewish context, which will be very become very important, you know, pretty quickly in the early church, is that you have obviously, you know, the sort of primary location of the sort of uh, the Jewish people in the time leading up to Christ is in in the Holy Land, Jerusalem, Palestine, whatever you want to call it at at the time. Um, But you also have this phenomenon of the the diaspora or diaspora, or you want to say that word, of the sort of spreading out and scattering of Jewish communities throughout uh, throughout the ancient world. And so um, it's, a, it's sort of an interesting, uh, an interesting estimate that at least, you know, I, I guess I didn't realize when I was sort of coming to this material that at the time of Christ, at the birth time when, when Christ was born, it's estimated, again, this is not like a hard and fast thing, but what scholars, you know, doing their best to kind of come up with some sense of this. Think that there may have been as many as five or six times the the number of Jews outside of, let's say, Palestine, um, as within uh, its its sort of within the the Holy Land. Um, so you know, five or six times the population um, were sort of scattered across various cities, uh, communities uh, throughout throughout the ancient world. Um, Alexandria in Egypt is one place where you know this is where there's a a, a decent sized you know, community of, of Jews, and it's a place where there's a tremendous amount of intellectual exchange between um, you know Jewish scholars and uh, Gentile or pagan scholars, however you want to call it. Um, in, in the ancient world, and, and so you have a sort of you have contact, intellectual uh, sort of engagement between uh, sort of Judaism and and some of these classical uh, currents, intellectual currents, and um, you know it's from the it's from this experience and, and from the um, you know encounter of Judaism with with um, With uh, classical sources, you get the translation right of the. Uh, you get the Septuagint into Greek, and so the reason I mentioned the di- diaspora and, and the situation in Alexandria with the uh, translation and intellectual encounter is uh, early Christianity is going to be a heavily, heavily um, sort of Jewish phenomenon such that it, for the first 150 years or so there was still I think some question about whether or not it was another kind of sect or, or variety of, of Judaism it wasn't always clear to people um, and some of the natural places that the early early um, Christian missionaries and 
including the apostles. Um, but even like the, the first generation after the apostles will go is to these other cities where they there are Jewish communities because they you know they they see this uh, they see the Jews as uh, these communities as prime um, recipients of the gospel and, and of uh, the knowledge of Jesus and what he did and so the fact that this diaspora existed um, and that there was some tradition of kind of encounter intellectual engagement uh, only kind of helps point the way forward for uh, some of the early Christian uh, missionaries now obviously Paul and 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 the uh, the mission the missions to the you know to the Gentiles the other half of that equation but uh, nevertheless it's, it's um, you know, worth worth uh, recognizing that that the Jewish diaspora was was an important con- uh, sort of framework within which the the early church operated in terms of spreading the gospel. Okay, any let me pause right there. Any questions about the sort of Jewish context or influence? Is, um, after the Jewish uh, uprising in the late uh, first century. I thought all the Sadducees were basically uh, extinct at that point. Um, you mean the first century BC? Well, what was it, eighty or ninety BC when they had the, uh, the uprising against the Roman Empire? Pretty much all the Jewish leaders were, were killed off at that point, weren't they? I thought that's when the Sadducees were all killed off, and they. Pharisees were the only ones that were really left. But I, now I understand there's all these different pockets outside of Jerusalem that weren't affected. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's fair to really see the sad. I, I don't, I wouldn't say that they were entirely eliminated. Um, but, but the Pharisees were far more influential and sort of, um, Numerous in terms of exerting political influence and 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 legal guidance and all of that. Um, yeah, I, I think there there would there would be sort of like remnants of of the, of this tradition that that existed, and it was it was just like a counterbalance or, or sort of an opposition to the to the Pharisaical approach, which is that it was like the Pharisees were heavy on you know, the interpretation of the law and the adherence, whatever, and the Sadducees represent the kind of um, a much more sort of traditional in the sense of not relying upon the interpretive uh, interpretive uh, texts, you know, and so there was still some, there were still some who were proponents, if you will, or in, the, in that tradition of, of the Sadducees in terms of how they viewed um, Jewish law. Something I I wanted to say, and then I'll throw it back to, you know, if you have further questions. Question. Oh, when when was the library in Alexandria burned, and why? When I'm sorry, when was it burned? Yeah, and why? Who did it? The Romans? Yeah, uh, trying to think. Uh, I don't know that I have the exact date of that. I, I mean, I could try and find it. The um, 
Yeah, it was in, it was in the early. Oh gosh, yeah, I'm not I'm not certain of the date. I don't want to guess and have it you know be be very wrong. Um, you know, it was it was um, if I recall correctly, yeah, it was it was sort of the consequence of the the just a battle that that was playing out in North Africa and um, you know the siege of the city of of Alexandria. I don't know. I'd really want to look it up before saying this with any amount of certainty that that um, sometimes you know the what happens in these in these um, sieges and and that kind of stuff uh, that kind of situation is is not always intended. I mean, I don't know if there's great clarity around the intent, whether there was intent or whether you know a mob sometimes, especially you know a military. Um, uh, group that's you know sort of marauding or, or whatever plundering a city sometimes gets out of control and, and you know things that that um, you know weren't weren't necessarily pre uh, premeditated wind up occurring. I, I'm just not sure. I'm, I'm sorry to say, I, but I can look it up and, and get back to. You. The first the first time was in 48 BC. 48. Okay. Yeah, Thank and you. it was because Julius Caesar was after Pompeii. So he burned the fleet. When he did, the city caught fire and burned the library. Hmm. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. But it burned about five other times, also. <laughs> yeah, I think the second, second or third century for sure was another instance. Is it, what I wanted to know was it related to the diaspora in any way, you know, or was it just purely as? That Bob said the the uh, Romans came in and burned it uh, because it was had to do with their war or whatever you know. Yeah, I think it's more the la- I mean my, my uh, awareness of it is is more that it w- would be for political reasons, if you will. Um, you know, to the extent that it was the uh, the one of the, the the triumphs or like kind of landmarks, the jewels of the city. You know that that's one of the things you want to you want to destroy. You know if you're trying to defeat you know, the the people. I think it was also just in general a product of a civil war, just between the different factions in this particular case. Mm. Great, thanks. Sorry, I, I know I'm not uh, as as informed on that question um oh the point i wanted to make just uh, about about um the jewish context is that the the jewish law was the the civil law for for the you know the the community in jerusalem and in in the holy land that that um you know, there were certain kind of precepts of Roman law that, again, as I said, they sort of had negotiated a kind of settlement or, or agreement with the, the Roman Empire. But by and large, you know, the everyday experience of, of a Jew at the time of Christ was that the the Jewish law was, was the, identical to the civil law. And so um, just to just to recognize that as a feature of, you know, this early period, I think is, is, um, 
know it's important. So sorry, with that, that was just something I meant to say. So any other questions about the Jewish um, influence? Doug? Nope. I will try okay. Well, what about when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD? What kind of an impact? Because it seems to me that the Gospels all started to get recorded right after that, right? St. Paul's writing a little bit before that. And Christianity's obviously, it seems to be sort of flourishing during that time. I don't know if that's the right word, but would the destruction of the temple have been something that would have increased interest in Christianity or maybe not because the Jews were so devastated by it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, my sense is that it, it was some, by that point um, somewhat independent from having, you know, an a major impact on uh, on Christianity, uh, except that again, and I would say it, it's always worth sort of noting that there wasn't a totally always a totally clear um, distinction between between these two groups in certain places, and so the destruction of the temple, you know, was a, a, a tremendously sort of demoralizing moment. Um, for the Jews, but it's it's not clear that it, it really impacted um, for good or ill sort of the trajectory of the the um, the Christians, except that it seems to have in, in you know in all likelihood intensified you know the animosity, if you will, that. Um, in many places that the Jews had for Christians in some way, you know, obviously it was, it was the Romans, right. But the sort of instinct of uh, a number of people at the time was sort of blame the Christians for, um, you know, screwing up this more or less peaceful arrangement that the, the Jews had. Um, and so that to use a, uh, a word. I mean, the Christians were kind of scapegoated um, in some in some ways by the Jews, and, and that just intensified the animosity that existed. But I don't know that it really impacted the development of the early church beyond that. Well, the, the point I was trying to make: if the, if the Sadducees were still in force after the um, the uprising. They probably would have been very uh, detrimental to the early Christians, seeing that they're so conservative. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I see what you're saying. I mean, again, they were just a very minority view. I mean, they just didn't exert. I mean, it's worth it's worth highlighting them because um, you know just to get a full sweep of like the the different views. But I, I would want to wouldn't want to over uh, overstate the influence that they had. I mean, clearly, early Christians were were most challenged by the Pharisees. All right. Um, so let's keep going then. Um, you know, obviously, against this sort of backdrop of the messianic hope and and all of that, we we have um, you know, Jesus and the 
you know, the heralding, uh, what part of the messianic hope, right, was that he would be heralded by a forerunner. Uh, you know, you have John the Baptist and, um, uh, you know, Jesus sort of is, his public ministry is launched after the baptism, right, his baptism in the Jordan River. And there's sort of a, again, I, I this is such a simplification that, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, doesn't do it justice by any stretch, but there's sort of a, a twofold gospel that, that we're talking about when, when we talk about this very, you know, the early period, the beginning of the church, the life of Christ. And so when we talk about the, the gospels, um, and the, the gospel, if you will, in, in sort of a, a broad sense, um, the early church was generally, was generally, um, referring to the, you know, the story, the, the passion, death, and resurrection of, of Christ, right? But, you know, during his life, Jesus himself proclaimed uh, a gospel. And the gospel was about the, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has, I don't know, pick your interpretation. It's, it's, it's characterized many ways, it's translated many ways, but the kingdom of God has drawn near, has broken through, um, you know, w- whatever. But but he says, you know, re- repent. The kingdom of God is drawn near. You know, repent. Um, and then he tells a number of stories about, uh, to, or to illustrate what what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and that's a key po- a key part of his his teaching, right? <coughs> I mean, that's what he's really proclaiming. Um, and so, yes, there's a lot of attention on you know, the work that he does, the miracles, the healing the, healing the sick, and, you know, the blind can see, all that's important. Um, but I think, you know, if, if we're trying to get at, like, what was, what was his main, like, the, 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 the main um, message he was proclaiming through his, his ministry, it was about um, the the onset, if you will, or the beginning, the initiation, the breaking through of the, the kingdom. And this is a different, a different kingdom than, you know, the earthly kingdom. And, you know, the, the last will be first. And, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, all, all speaking to um, the way in which, uh, you know, his message was one that was this kind of comprehensive um, challenge to <laughs> the way people were used to thinking about everything. I mean, it, it turned upside down so much of sort of the status quo, and you know, he's he's calling people to um, a new way of understanding and living. Uh, one in which you know the fact that uh, you know you don't belong to the right social group doesn't automatically exclude you from you know. God's favor or doing good, um, and and so you know that's sort of the, the 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 news that Jesus Himself is proclaiming, um, which I think is an important part of his his own life. I mean, it's not just uh, you know here here was a guy that came and and performed some miracles that were pretty awesome, and then you know was crucified and and resurrected. I mean, yeah, that's that's all true as far as it goes, but 
but the purpose, uh, you know, uh, his purpose in his public ministry was to proclaim this, this new thing, this good news. Um, and of course, when you talk about his proclamation, you get the sort of famous formulation of already, but not yet, right? He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's broken through, but it's also <clears throat> not yet completed. Um, and, and so there's a, a real challenge to that proclamation. In, in his in his preaching and his ministry and his teaching. Father O'Reilly would have said that the central theme was that Jesus was the kingdom of God. Thank you. No, that's that's great. I don't know, but maybe it's just me. I, I mean maybe I'm wrong about this, but I've I've always um had the sense that somehow that was like, this is a very under, like, preached uh, aspect of uh, Christianity or, or Jesus's life. Um, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to hear more homilies on the kingdom of God. Uh, but anyway, that's just me, perhaps. Um, so the other thing I really like about the, um, well, it's not about this. It, the, the thing I like that, that uh, Vidmark quotes in terms of, af so after, uh, you know, after the, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you know, what, what we have is this, this um, kind of astounding claim by his, his followers. By the way, followers that you know, didn't exactly cover themselves in, in glory when it, when it mattered the most. Um, but, but you have this claim that, that they they've seen him and they've you know eaten with him and 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 he's he's um, risen from the dead and I really think uh, I mean I always every year when I sort of go back and, and read the text along with with the class um, I always appreciate Vidmar's inclusion of that Ronald Knox quote however it goes you know that the, the key message of the early Christians wasn't wasn't love your neighbor it was he is risen that that the crux of the early christian message was first and foremost um sort of the fact of the resurrection i think the reason i like that is because i, I sort of have this sense that you know we focus a lot on you know certain aspects of the moral teaching and especially the stuff that goes down easy um but but the early church was, you know, yeah, love your neighbors is a great message, and we should. And it's not always easy. But like, um, the moral teachings weren't exactly the point, right? It was, it was what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. That that was what the, you know, early church was primarily interested in proclaiming. Um, and so we see, you know, after the resurrection, a kind of. Um, uh, I mean, inspiration seems like a, not quite the right word because it's almost too obvious, but the way in which, you know, the apostles are um, able to go out and, and in much in a much different outcome, if you will, than, than how things um, played out during the Passion. Like, you know, of course, Peter being the example here, you know, the, you know, the, the chief one, you know, he denies Jesus and then, you know, uh, after... Is um, 
you know, encounter with the risen Christ is willing to sacrifice his own life in, in, in the same, you know, in the interest of the same uh, sort of goal of proclaiming Christ resurrected. And so, um, you know, the apostles go out again, as I was getting at earlier, the, the um, presence of these communities outside of the Holy Land certainly were, were sort of prime prime targets uh, where, they, where they would often go. Um, and I'm just sort of thinking, I, I, I don't want to belabor the apostles too much because I, I do want to mention Paul here before we run out of time. Um, you know, Paul is, uh, of course, <laughs> tremendously important, well, well known. He, um, what's so important about him is, you know, his, his background and his learning makes him sort of uniquely uh, suited to, or maybe not uniquely, but but he he he's able to um, play a kind of particularly important role in in um, spreading the gospel. He was born to, um, you know, sort of well, well-off family. And, uh, you know, his father was, he comes from this sort of Pharisaic line. His father was, was a Pharisee, but also um, possessed Roman citizenship, which was a great sort of benefit. Um, so Paul has, um, you know, this upbringing in, in Tarsus, which, you know, by, you know, as far as we know, was, was pretty, um, uh, you know, would have been a good intellectual environment. Uh, he's, he's, um, you know, studying Tarsus at the time was kind of one of the preeminent educational centers in the, in the ancient world. Um, it was also one of the major sort of seats of Stoic teaching. That's a, a sort of an interesting thing I mentioned earlier. It's likely that Paul was influenced there, not because he, he, he we know that he studied. I mean, we don't have any evidence that he did study under a Stoic, but the, the city itself, you know, was a, a sort of a hotbed of Stoic teaching, and it's likely that that um, you know, he absorbed some of that. Uh, but anyway, he gets a, a sort of strict um, Jewish upbringing, but, but a very, you know, a, a very good sort of background. Um, you know, he himself studies under a famous elder in Jerusalem and, um, you know, really buys into kind of the Pharisaic um, approach, is all in on the careful observance of the law as being sort of means to um, salvation, even characterizes, right, even characterizes his own conduct by that standard as blameless during this period, looking back. Um, of course, uh, you know, he has this conversion experience on, on um, the roads to Damascus. And, uh, from that, from that moment on, um, you know, Saul becomes Paul, and you know, in the church history course, it, there's not too much, um, you know, that I'm inclined to say about that moment. Just like with Constantine, there's not too much I'd be inclined to say about 
you know, any moment of conversion because there's a sort of fundamentally um, different question about, you know, someone's conversion. What I can say from a historical perspective is you have a man who we know was persecuting Christians and and was um, very much um, an advocate of, you know, sort of the Jewish, uh, the pharisaical way of, of understanding the law and how one should live. And at some, you know, some moment in time that that all changed. And um, the sort of old legalism that, that he was very much uh, involved with advancing no longer becomes his, his um, guiding principle. And instead, he, he, um, spreads the word right about about Jesus and about what his um, you know life meant and particularly you know as a corrective you know to the Pharise- to the Pharisees that it's not simply that, that to, to follow Jesus and, and to be a Christian is not simply about the external um, observation of you know rituals or, or practices but rather uh, you know, fundamentally about faith in Christ. Um, that's that's clearly a, a kind of uh, emphasis uh, in, in Paul's teaching. And, you know, in Vidmar's text, there's, uh, I think, two very good, very nice maps of his missionary journeys, um, which, you know, obviously he, he becomes so, so-called apostle to the Gentiles, whereby he he seeks out, um, you know, uh, communities of non-Jews to spread this message, and he's uh, he's not universally successful. I mean, we we know right from the New Testament, we can read about his journeys and successes and his failures and shipwrecks and all of it, good stuff. But um, for our purposes here, I think where I want to just close is. In Paul's missionary work, you know, he's appealing to people, um, who, you know, who are not Jewish, who are not, didn't grow up uh, following Jewish law. He's telling them that, you know, faith in Christ is the thing that matters, you know, be baptized um, and, and believe. And on the other hand, you have, you know, sort of the apostles and, and, sort of their ministry to Jewish communities where the the, um, the practice of observance of Jewish law is is sort of baked in I mean it's just just second nature almost and so you have you know observance of the dietary laws circumcision um, you know all of the, that kind of thing is present on the one hand through the sort of a lot of the missionary work of, of the apostles and then you have Paul, um, you know, really focusing on uh, focusing on you know, baptism as the preeminent sign, but then um, you know, not not saying that well one must become Jewish in order to become Christian. And so this this raises some tensions. Um, it wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion. Uh, you know how how this you know ought to be portrayed. How how uh, Christianity ought to be presented and, and whether or not um you know a gentile needed to 
to obey all or follow all of Jewish law before they become a Christian. Um, the the key moment, right, uh, that that we hear about in the New Testament, the Council of Jerusalem in forty nine. Um, you know, Peter and Paul and others are there to sort of negotiate this question or discuss this question. And, you know, there really was a chance that, that, um, the outcome could have been that anyone who wants to be a Christian is required to follow the totality of Jewish law, which would include circumcision and would include all of the uh, the dietary and other and other um, sort of laws. Uh, the outcome is more or less a, um, a sort of broader approach, which is to say that, uh, well, specifically circumcision is not required uh, for for males. But then also um, there is some degree to which certain aspects of the Jewish dietary. Uh, laws are, are maintained, you're not supposed to, even as Christians, uh, even as Gentiles, you're not supposed to eat meat, sacrifice, um, you know, to, to idols, um, or strangled, um, you know, there were certain things that they maintained of the law that was expected of Christians, but by and large, it, it was, you know, the outcome was that you did not have to uh, obey the fullness of Jewish law in order to be a Christian. And this is something that I think um, is the first instance of a, a kind of moment in time where, you know, the church could have followed a path that was ar- arguably could have been a little bit more restrictive um, and instead, you know, went in a direction that was more open. I mean, we'll see this again with the question of the, uh, the people who lapse, who sort of renounce the faith during the persecution and and there again, you know, we'll see a moment in time when um, they, the church could have decided that they're permanently excluded, like one strike and you're out. But instead, they opted for, um, you know, a broader, uh, a broader approach to understanding you know, who's a part of the church. And so that this Council of Jerusalem in 49 AD obviously goes a long way to opening up Christianity to become a universal religion, not just... Um, sort of outgrowth of, of Judaism Proverbs. Any questions? Yes, well, if you go to Vidmar, when he starts off in his dialogue about Paul, he starts off trashing and he starts off uh, John Stuart Mill's 19th century social political therapist said that Paul was the first great corrupter of Christianity. Others have accused him of being the anti-arch enemy of Christ and uh, one who did more than anything else to distort the teachings of Christ, and he made the statements without ever explaining, you know, where he got the, where he got that from. So I was just curious. I mean, is there is there an approach or a view that Paul was not necessarily good for the church? It's, uh, so how do you how do you mean that? Sorry, actually, uh, I don't. I mean, I don't think Vidmar is is affirming. You know that. The critics, I think he's... No, he's not, but he just, he started off making that statement before he even said anything good about Paul. Right. And he didn't say why. He didn't say why, you know, where that approach came from. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think he's, he's maybe just being, you know, somewhat 
I don't know, descriptive of, you know, how, how Paul has been viewed or interpreted over, over time. I mean, there is a kind of, um, there, there has been a thread of sort of, of, especially in the more, more modern era, if you will. I think that's why he mentioned Mill and, and Nietzsche, um, in seeing Paul as this, uh, as this sort of figure that that ch- changes the sort of the trajectory that Christ himself, you know, had wanted for the church, which which would have been sort of you know a more um, more amenable to certain modern sensibilities, let's say. Um, but I mean, I don't know that he's trying to do anything there other than um, other than you know set up two sides to understanding Paul. I, I, I don't know that he was driving it anything beyond that. This is the first time I've really heard anybody even mention anything negative about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, in that, I mean, in that sense, then maybe that's, the, you know, part of what he's hoping to do is is just point out that that sentiment exists. I mean, it does, it is a more modern Thing. of course you know the through well through the protestant reformation in the christian community there's great reverence for for paul and the protestants think you know that um, the, the church will lose the sort of pauline will lose its sort of pauline um, bearings in in some of their em- emphasis more on you know works and all of that whereas paul is, is more on on faith but um yeah i don't know it's, I mean, it's, I think he's just, he's just painting a, a picture about, you know, he's not universally seen as this great Christian figure, but perhaps one that changed the trajectory. Uh, Doug, are you going for a question? I was, I was going to say, I read that as kind of more along the lines of Paul was seen as a, as a, I don't want to use the word competitor, but I can't think of a better one to Peter. And the two of them butted heads often, and their disciples did as well over the, the path of the church. And that, that's kind of like how I saw that. Not so much that he was bad for the church, but as you pointed out, there you know there was Peter and there was Paul, and they were different, and they had their own way about them, and maybe there was some competition or. I'm not quite sure what word to use, but, you know, they had their own followers, I guess, would be the way to point that out. Yeah, and even just to go um, down into the next paragraph, and I think, you know, what Bidmar's getting at is this sentence, regardless, Paul remains a center of controversy. It is debated how much of his teaching was his own and how much came from, from Jesus Christ. I mean, I think to the, to the extent that there are critics, I mean, part, yes, I want to uh, agree, Doug, with what you just said, too. I think that another possible um, sort of uh, aspect to Rob's point is, um, you know, this question of to what degree, you know, Paul, Pauline theology has sort of become representative of Christianity. Um, and he's seen as, you know, how many of his letters are in the New Testament, right? I mean, it's a big part. He's a big part of the New Testament. Um, and and I think, you know, there is still some some debate, if you will, about to what degree is it Paul or is it Christ? 
it's 9.35. I apologize. Any, I should have left us a little bit of time left to go before I ask for questions. So any, any final questions? Well, thanks very much, everyone, and uh, have a good week. And for next time, just read Chapter 2. I mean, I know we're a little bit behind, so I'll, I'll probably pause us after next week for any further reading. Let's just get two chapters in, and um, we'll, we'll keep going. Thanks, everyone. Have do, a great week. Do we have class Monday? Oh. Do we? It's technically we Residence Day, but I didn't know if, like, we were... It's listed yeah. on the calendar that we don't have class. You're right. Thank you. I forgot. Yeah, you're right. Because it's syllabus too. It's right in the syllabus. Yeah. Who wrote that syllabus? <laughs> um, all right. So I'll see you guys in two weeks then. <laughs> um, by by all means, read the first two chapters. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't thinking because because of last week. I'm, I'm in a mindset that this is really our first meeting, but it's actually our third. So, see you in two weeks. Good night.